0: Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem. That is God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat B'Shalach, after he had let go. The address is Shemot, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, through chapter 17, verse 16. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben-Limon. The written commentary was updated on January 29th of 2006. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch at Adonai Eloheinu melech Olam, Asher bachar banu mekol ha'amim, venatan lanu et Torah to. Baruch at Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. I will sing to Adonai, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he threw into the sea. Sing to Adonai, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he threw into the sea. These are the jubilant words of Moshe and his sister Miriam, the prophet, as they express their praise at the miraculous rescue of Am Yisrael, uh, the people of Israel, by Hashem. That's in chapter 15, verses 1, as well as verse 21. Now, for those of you who are just catching up with us, um, the story goes like this. The children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and the Pharaoh refused to let them go. God told Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh refused. Pharaoh refused. And therefore, God sent Moshe to uh, enact the ten plagues. And in the ten plagues, God rescued Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, God rescued Israel from the Egyptians. And out from Egypt they went. And of course, they crossed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses, as the writer of the Apostolic Scriptures tells us. And thus, now they stand on the shore, uh, free from the king of Egypt, the legal um, uh Bondage to Egypt has been broken and the legal relationship between Pharaoh and the people of Israel has been severed by the death of the Pharaoh himself. So, we all know the story. Pharaoh had finally released them, allowing them to travel into the desert to worship their God. But as soon as he and his fellow Egyptians came to their senses, they took up after them in hot pursuit, intending to reverse the situation. Um, Isn't that just like sin? You get set free from sin, whether it's personal sin, uh, getting set free in Messiah Yeshua, or in the case of Israel, corporate sin or corporate bondage, getting set free from Egypt. And what does sin do? Sin pursues after you, because sin knows you. Sin was familiar with you, and you know what? We're familiar with sin. And so, even after we get saved, it seems like your old friends keep coming around or or begin to come around or uh, uh, the old habits still creep in to our thought patterns and it's very difficult sometimes to uh, break those patterns but thanks be to the power of God we can, we can have victory um, Hashem in the story that we're reading here Hashem knowing the glory that was due His mighty name He had led the mixed multitude by the way of Yam Suf which is the the Sea of Reeds or otherwise known as the Red Sea and if if we stop and think about it Hashem leading them the way that they led them. This was no ordinary wandering, for indeed the text tells us that it was the angel of the Lord, who is in fact the Lord himself, which took the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was leading them. When the Egyptians finally overtook them at the seashore, as I mentioned earlier, it was then that the Holy One performed his mighty work, and he drove the sea back on either side, allowing the children of Israel to um, the cross over on dried ground. Of course, when the Pharaoh and his armies followed in pursuit, Hashem didn't keep the waters held back. In fact, he released the waters and they were all destroyed, both horse and rider. And that's why we have the verse um, worded the way it does, horse and rider he threw into the sea. Thanks be unto God again that um, in salvation, in uh, coming to um, know the Lord personally, personally, um, as you've you've accepted Yeshua, or corporately in the case of Am Israel here, um, our salvation is complete and secure in the Messiah, or complete and secure in God Himself. And there's no reason to let the uh, the armies of sin pursue us any further. Now, as I mentioned, as you well know, that even after you get saved. Um, Everything's not a bed of roses, in fact, it's quite the opposite you've now become the enemy of the adversary, and uh, the battle's really on. things begin to heat up uh, it's then that the um, temptations seem to increase it's then that sin seems to rear its ugly face uh, even stronger than before because the adversary is trying to take back that which uh, he had before you uh, surrendered your heart to Yeshua so um, as we read through the pages of our Torah, let's not forget the timeless lesson that is being demonstrated for us. And that's that God sets us free. And after setting us free, he does not leave us on our own to fend for ourselves, to uh, chart our own course. Rather, as in with the case of Israel, we find that getting set free from Egypt was just the beginning of their life with God because they are going to go on to Sinai to receive the Torah of Moshe and eventually they will go on to the promised land itself. So don't give up on the people just yet and consequently learn the valuable lesson for your own lives. God set you free. He brought you out to bring you in. Okay? Don't forget that lesson. Let's go back to my commentary here. This next section is entitled Traditions. (laughs) I'm reminded of uh, a... um, Reb Tevia, in the the uh, musical fiddler on the roof, and when you ask uh, Tevia why the people of his town do the things they do, he points his finger in the air and he says tradition. Well, this section is entitled Traditions. As we read through the Torah portion, um, a couple of interesting features dot this story of the most miraculous deliverance in the history of Israel. They're not readily found in the text of the Torah itself, but rather they have been preserved in the traditions and the memories of the people who have been through it. The people of Israel, of whom we read about in the Torah, sometimes we forget that these are real people, the events really happened. And as a result, it's a real tradition. And so, there are going to be stories that have been circulated down through the generations of the people of Israel concerning the uh, more miraculous events that have uh, taken place in their lives. And um, the Exodus story is certainly no exception. In fact, according to tradition, when the Pharaoh followed Moshe into the sea, like we read about in the text, according to tradition, he didn't meet his demise when the waters came crashing back Onto one single mass. Now, again, we're talking tradition, so don't um, be confused. Tradition versus what the Torah says. Sometimes traditions have a way of, of um, how shall we say, not necessarily contradicting the text, but rather the t- the tale gets taller with the telling. And so, um, it's it's meant to be an object lesson uh, for the generations to come. It's not necessarily meant to uproot the truth of what the Torah says. So don't. Don't look too hard, uh, don't be too hard on the traditions. At any rate, um, uh, he, he didn't die, and instead, the pharaoh escaped destruction, according to the tradition. He escaped destruction by turning his chariot back around to the point of origin. Thus, only his henchmen died that awful day. And so, for the sake of teaching purposes, the tradition goes on to say, that instead of eventually dying, he in fact lives forever at the gates of Sheol, the gates of hell. And what is he doing there? Well, according to the tradition, he is persistently warning all of the evil kings and earthly rulers that come that way. Here's what he's warning them. Why did you not learn from my example? Don't you know, the Pharaoh says, that to resist the Holy One of Israel is other chutzpah, or sheer foolishness? It's an interesting tradition, a tale that we might tell our children if we were um, uh, survivors of that um, awesome event. And what is the tradition trying to tell us? Just teach us a lesson. Exactly what the um, Pharaoh might be saying there if it were true. I don't, that, I don't believe that Pharaoh does live forevermore. I do believe he died in the story. But um, nevertheless, the tradition has a powerful um, lesson to be uh, captured and taken with us. God is is the awesome God of the universe. And no one shall thwart his plans. No devil, no evil ruler, no one. God will have his way with his creation. And to resist God the way that the Pharaoh did during the ten plagues, to say, I don't know this God of the Egyptians, "I don't," or of the Hebrews, I don't know this God, and therefore I will not let your people go. Like Pharaoh willfully um, hardened his heart against the message of Moshe. It's just, it's, it's, It's sheer foolishness to challenge the God of creation. So again, although we recognize that this is merely a teaching tool and not to be taken literally, the lesson remains rooted in our lives and hearts today. The Torah has been given to us so that in learning of its examples, we might learn from its examples and serve our mighty God in a closer walk with Him. The lives of the people in the Torah had been preserved for us today, that we might not make the same foolish mistakes as some of them. Captured within the pages of its examples is the ultimate lesson that remains timeless. Here it is quote, I am Adonai, says the Lord. End quote. The reference there came from chapter 14, verse 4, as well as verse 18. Of the song that the children of Israel sang in chapter 15, it's interesting to notice um, as I look this passage up, both in English translations as well as the original Hebrew, it's interesting to notice that the Hebrew word translated as sang in verse 1, where it says, um, uh, let's see, let me let me turn to the text here, chapter 15, thought I had it opened, I didn't. Here we go. uh, Quote, chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moshe and the people of Israel sang this song to Adonai out of the CJB. Interestingly, the um, word sang there in this verse is in the future tense. That's odd. Because if I read it there, it seems like it was in the past tense. But it's in the future tense. And here's what the rabbis have had to say about this peculiarity quote. The Torah uses the future tense. Yashir will sing. In the plain sense, the term means that upon seeing the miracle, Moses and the people decided that they would sing. That's what we would gather if the text was translated the way it was written in the Hebrew there. They go on to say that Moses and the people decided that they would sing a song. From this use of the future tense, the sages derive a Midrashic allusion to the principle that God will bring the dead back, to life in messianic times and then they will sing God's praises once again, end quote isn't that interesting, actually Rashi, the famous Jewish commentator Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, he's the one that um, made that comment and I lifted the quote out of the stone edition Humash, the art scroll series, public, uh, published by Masorah Publications in 1993 and 1994 and um, the quote was found on page one. Um, sorry, the quote was found on page 376 uh, of this particular song of Moses. The apostolic writers also had something to say. Let's pull a quote from their letters. The New Covenant has this to say about this song: "Quote, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire." And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And here's the uh, the part that's related to our story in Exodus. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways thou king of saints who shall who shall not fear thee o lord and glorify thy name for thou only art holy for all nations shall come and worship before thee for thy judgments are made manifest that's taken from revelation chapter 15 verses 1 through 4 out of the king james version how marvelous don't you think that the redemption of God's elect began during this season of Passover, the beginning of the seasons of prophetic provision for his chosen ones, signified, I might add, by the singing of this song. Likewise, the ultimate redemption of his people will also take place, I believe, when the final culmination of the wrath of Hashem is meted out to his enemies, which I believe possibly could be a final Yom Kippur. Um, you can see the context uh, as we read the book of Revelation, those eschatological buffs, you end-time prophecy buffs that are listening to my... Um, uh, a podcast there see the context involving the temple and the ark of the testimony in verse 5 of revelation chapter 15 here during the final judgment of those last days um, when god meets out his wrath to his enemies um, i believe it will be signified by the singing of this very song i think that's where john's going with the singing of this song at any rate Another lesson that's been preserved within the stories of the Jewish people is the tradition that as the people observed the horses and the riders drowning in the Sea of Reeds, as they began to rejoice, that Hashem looked down from heaven and he became saddened and he scolded his people. Isn't that interesting? The mouth of the a Holy One is opened up in this tradition, and here's what he might say. How can you rejoice at the death of my children? For even Pharaoh and his armies are my children also. End quote. That's interesting. This causes us, this tradition, it causes us today to recognize the fact that our great Heavenly Abba is compassionate beyond our comprehension. Even though the King of Egypt willfully hardened his heart against the Holy One, It was not our maker's original intent to destroy the Pharaoh. Indeed, as I've stated elsewhere, as is also taught in the Torah, our God is not willing that any should perish, but that all, that would include the Pharaoh, that all should come to repentance. Our Lord is not a a, a killing machine ready to strike down all that oppose him, to be sure. He has demonstrated his patience and abundant mercy time and time again throughout the pages of the Torah. No, the option to turn from his wickedness unto repentance was indeed offered to the Pharaoh time and time again. And yet, as we read, he chose to refuse. There's a valuable lesson couched within this tradition. Ours today is a lesson in humility and fear. If he, God, did not spare those evil men who persistently refused to surrender under the almighty hand of the almighty personified, how much more will he not spare us who have been given the revelation of the Son of God and the free gift of the Ruach HaKodesh who testifies of him. I've taken that little Midrash there from Romans chapter 11 verse 21. Yes, today, even though our God demonstrated mightily through the Pharaoh and his armies that quote "There is none like him among the gods, mighty, and that there is no other like him in the sublime holiness, praises and wonders," end quote that lift that the uh, um, quote was lifted from chapter 15 verse 11. Our God is, in fact, a loving God. He doesn't change. He does desire genuine fellowship and a living relationship with each and every one of his created sons and daughters. And that includes the Egyptians back then. It includes those who would be recognized or called the enemies of God today. They are the enemies of God because they have chosen to to turn against God. But God in his mercy is still reaching out to them and saying drop your animosity, come back to me, repent of your sin, let me soften your heart, and I can save you. We need to keep this in perspective as we study the Torah, especially the portion that we, the church, call the Old Testament. Why? Because we in the church today tend to reduce the God of the, quote, old to a holy terror and a merciless manslayer. While at the same time, we somehow seem to pin him against the God, his son, of the quote new, who is much more gentle and loving and forgiving. In reality, the father and the son share the exact same purpose, divine will, and character. And we, you and I reading these commentaries, listening to these podcasts, reading the Torah, we have been given a glimpse of the judgment of God in the Tanakh. We have been given a glimpse of his mercy in the Brit Hadashah, in the Apostolic Scriptures. It's the same God. Yeshua is the same Messiah. We need to remember this as we read the Bible. Finally, another feature that's lost in the translation from the original Hebrew text of this particular parasha, but has been preserved in the memories of the Jewish people, is the structure that the Masoretes, the preservers of the written text, the uh, family that uh, have allowed us to have the text that we have in its original autograph, um, the Masoretic text comes from these people. They have cast chapter 15 in a particular format or a syntax or or the way the words line up. And um, you can see this uh, not in the, in the very original text, but um, I, I don't know how far it goes back, but I am... Certain that if you look in a Humash or a Tanakh, um, then you will find it probably there. In fact, to see this feature, I simply pulled out my um, Humash and looked at the original text of chapter 15 as it's presented. Um, By the way, the Chumash is a version that's used in many synagogues, and it contains mostly the Torah portions and their Haftarot portions. That's what a Chumash is. It contains just the five books of Moshe. Um, You can also see this in many other versions of the Tanakh. Um, For instance, if you go out and look at the art scroll Tanakh, uh, you can see this feature there. What ends up happening is that the words of chapter 15 are laid out in a brick pattern. So, you know, where each letter of a... uh, stone of the brick is kind of offset against the other. And this suggests the awesome fact that the waters stood up on either side of the people that day as they crossed through the sea. It stood up as a wall. Maybe even a brick wall is what they're trying to suggest. But it stood up as a wall that held back the destruction of the sea. Okay, I'm not saying that the tradition teaches that there were bricks. What I'm saying is that in, in arranging the words of chapter 15 in the brick pattern, it reminds the reader visually that the walls uh, of the water were held up and they stood firm as they held back the destructive ocean coming in from on, on the people. And so um, this visual reminder forever captures the idea that the word of Hashem displayed on the pages of the wall of Hebrew words and letters, protected the people not only from the onslaught of the Pharaoh and his wicked soldiers, but it preserved them in the midst, that is within the depths and the death of the Sea of Reeds itself. It's a wonderful object lesson if you can uh, take a look at it. Moreover, once the people had crossed over safely, the same wall that protected the people of Israel, came crashing down upon their enemies. To be sure, as soon as we finish reading verse 19 of chapter 15 of the story, the destruction of Pharaoh's armies, which is verse 19, the bricked pattern returns to a normal structure with the beginning of verse 20. Isn't that really neat? That the the sages or the people have preserved that object lesson for us? I hope you can... Uh, Get a chance to look at it for yourself. Let's go on. This next section is entitled, The True Cornerstone. Keeping on this theme of walls, I want to make my own midrash out of this story. I want to, I want to provide my own tradition. The Torah teaches elsewhere that in the beginning, the Word existed. And in the fullness of time, the Word became a human being and dwelt among men. Now, the purpose of this word is twofold. One, at those who will fall, I'm sorry, all those who will fall upon the word will find everlasting life. And number two, all those upon whom the word itself falls will meet their destruction. So the choice is ours. Will we fall upon the word of Hashem bringing about a real change in our spiritual makeup? Or will we, like Pharaoh, resist the word of Hashem and bring its power crashing down upon us, resulting in our demise? Let's allow the Torah to speak for itself. Let me turn to Isaiah chapter 28. I want to read verse 16 out of the King James Version. Quote, Therefore thus saith the Lord God behold i lay in zion for a foundation a stone a tried stone a precious cornerstone a sure foundation he that believeth shall not make haste now of this precious cornerstone that we just read about it's also been explained elsewhere in, in the uh, book of matthew chapter 21 verse 42 uh, again out of the kjv quote Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This verse that Yeshua uh, just explained to his listeners that day, it's quoted um, out of the book of Psalms. I mean, he quotes from the book of Psalms. So the verse uh, is found there. Let's turn to the psalm. Uh, chapter 118, verse 22, and then read the verse. Quote, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. End quote. Moreover, um, of this stone, our master proclaimed. Quote, and I'm going to uh, lift this time a quote from Matthew chapter 21, and just two verses earlier or later than what I did before. Let's go down to verse 44 this time. Quote, and whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. End quote. Let me look also in the book of Romans. I think um, Rav Shaul uses the same principle about the stone uh, in chapter 11. Let me take a look. Um, no, maybe chapter... Is it chapter 10? Let's see. No. At any rate, um, in my commentary, I make note that just like the stones of the brick wall in Exodus chapter 15, which protected the people as they made their way to safety that day, but came crashing down upon those wicked men, in my observation, my midrash to the story here, the stone which is Yeshua today, the living Torah, the living Word of God, the stone shall protect and save those who believe in Hashem unto righteousness. That's a valuable lesson. But watch out. The warning is very clear. This same stone shall fall upon all the wicked men of humanity, and grind them to powder. Amen. A close to our commentary, a short one today. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch ata Adonai lohenu melecha olam, asher natan lanu toratemet, chayei olam Nata Batochenu Baruch ata Adonai noten hatora. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. King of the universe, you have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Laiman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email At Yeshua613 at Hotmail.com That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at Hotmail.com Or visit our website at GraftedIn.com That's GraftedIn.com